We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm James Bond. And I'm Jimmy Bond, the provocateur. And uh, well, we've got a bit of a task ahead of ourselves this week, Cam. We haven't introduced a movie yet, but uh, I think to get through it, we need to assemble a team, a team of Bonds. A team of Bond experts. And so uh, we've called in two previous guests. And um, I've been assured that they have done their exercises. They've stood on their head. They've had some royal jelly and washed their intestines. <laughs> Joining us firstly, back on the show, it is the writer of the James Bond lexicon and the co-host of the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast podcast. It is Mr. Alan J. Porter. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing fine, thank you. I have been out and fed the lions as well, and obviously, uh, you know, watered the black rose. So, excellent album from Thin Lizzy, by the way. Um, <laughs> black rose. <laughs> well, and to introduce his partner in crime on this episode to really help us bring it home, it is the creator of the licensed queer blog and podcast. Previous guest on the show, Mr. David Lowbridge Ellis. Hello, David. Good evening, everybody. I have to say I've checked your credentials in a Parisian pissoir, and I think we're ready to go. <laughs> there's there's so much to do here today. I, I don't know how we're going to get through this. I can see David's already on the martini. I wish I'd done the same thing. But, um, gents, I mean, thank you both for coming back on the show. Now, uh, you know, um, Alan, you joined us to talk about the Flint films. Correct. Oh, yeah. A while back. Um, but how have you been since? What's been going on with you? Um, I'm doing great, thank you. Just uh, hanging out, doing stuff, um, podcasting and talking Bond and writing Bond and writing other stuff and working on a novel. So, yeah, just... And, of course, the day job. So, yeah, been uh, been pretty busy. Um, and uh, that's about it, really. Well, you know, never worry about that day job too much. Just focus on, on the bond. That's why we're here, of course. Of course. Um, of course. And David, how about you? What What's new? Yeah, so the day job's been kind of intense, but that just makes me kind of redouble my efforts, really, on <laughs> License to Queer as a, as a kind of escape, really. So uh, since we last spoke, it was the Born Supremacy episode, wasn't it? So Certainly was. Your... You were our second guest ever. Wow. So, um, yeah, since then, I've um, had a lot of contributors on the website. So it's not just me writing for it now. There's probably about, I think it's about 15 people who've written various different things. And I've, uh, um, you know, appeared on lots of other people's podcasts and things like that. So I'm trying to get as many different perspectives on Bond as possible. Uh, so that's kind of fitting for Casino Royale, really, because, you know, the general idea being that, you know, anyone can be James Bond. And it turns out that lots of different people love lots of different things about James Bond. 
It's a funny factoid, but I've seen you in person, David, more recently than I've seen Cam. That's true. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, (laughs) is it that crazy? It's not a bad thing for me, to be honest with you. Distance distance helps when it comes to me and Cam. That's right. I'm trying to find other contributors to take my place more often so that I can spend (laughs) less time in the presence of Scott. (laughs) Um, But Cam, I think uh, without further ado, what are we talking about this week? We're tackling the 1967 adaptation of Casino Royale, starring David Niven, Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, a whole bunch of folks, and directed by a whole bunch of folks, and written by a whole bunch of folks. Uh, I've sent everyone uh, some LSD, so hopefully that will get us through the episode. But I think for some people who have maybe never seen this film, have maybe seen the original, maybe not even seen you know the, the Daniel Craig version or the one from the 50s, uh, let me read you out the letterbox.com synopsis for Casino Royale 1967. Casino Royale. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Sir James Bond is called back out of retirement to stop Smursh. In order to trick Smursh, James thinks up the ultimate plan, that every agent will be named James Bond. One of the Bonds, whose real name is Evelyn Tremble, is sent to take on Le Chiffre in a game of Baccarat, but all the Bonds get more than they can handle. I mean, if I were asked to sum up the plot of Casino Royale 67 in a few sentences, this human being out there, I bow down to them. They did their best. They came somewhat close. And that is about as close as you can get. I, I, I don't know what else I would have done with it, to be fair. But I'm I'm interested to hear from our guests. I'll talk about Cam and I's experiences with this film in a minute. But um, David, to you first. When did you first stumble drunkenly into the arms of Casino Royale 67? Well, I hope I wasn't drunk because I think I was about seven. Ah. So I, I, um, I rented this from the local library where it was like a pound for rentals. My family didn't rent videos very often. Um, and uh, I think it's because my parents just didn't want to pay the rental fee, to be honest. But the, the library was fine. So I remember renting it from the library thinking, oh, it's just another James Bond film. And then getting it home on VHS and watching it and thinking, it's not quite just another James Bond film is it but having said that it was still James Bond and I didn't know anything about you know the rights issues and I'm sure we'll get into this but this is just as official as you know the other James Bonds um but to me it obviously felt very different I think I watched it at the same time it was either just before or just after on a Majesty's Secret Service and that also felt quite strange in a way because it is something of a departure obviously not quite as strange but I found it fascinating as a child to be honest I didn't realize growing up you know then obviously social media wasn't a thing and seven-year-old doesn't tend to read an awful lot of in-depth film criticism uh but they i i didn't really kind of hate it like a lot of people do i just thought it was a bit weird but then again a lot of bond films are weird and the plots don't really make an awful lot of sense when you try to stretch them out so to me it didn't appear that different are you saying the faberge egg plot in octopussy doesn't make complete sense you mean it makes it makes even less sense the Fabergé plot than the hang on living daylights sm- okay phony defection to be able to smuggle diamonds to be able to buy heroin oh my god yeah exactly well I can only assume that your parents weren't renting videos because they were too busy getting you to practice Debussy on the piano 
No, I, I, I'm, af I'm afraid Debussy is something that um, I, I did not indulge in uh, as a child. Although I am quite partial nowadays to Lapsong Souchong Tea. Actually quite nice too. So I've got, definitely got that in common with Sir James. Mm. Oh, uh, Alan, what, what about you? What was your first uh, foray into Casino Royale 67? Uh, I was a little older than David, but there was no drink involved. Actually, my first encounter with it was on an album of James Bond theme tunes, a uh, Jeff Love and his big band orchestra cheap uh, album that I bought, I think when I was like 14 or 15, came out in 75, so yeah, I'd have been 14 or 15, um, which was him covering all the, the Bond theme tunes. And there was one on there for with a track that was like this really great poppy, really nice tune with the title Casino Royale. And I'm going, there's been no Bond movie called Casino Royale. I have no idea what that is um and i must have mentioned it to my to my father because he was a huge peter sellers fan uh like with the goons and everything he, he he adored everything peter sellers did and he was like oh that's a peter sellers movie and then the next time it came on tv he sat me down and was like okay this is the peter sellers casino royale we're going to watch it um and so i think that that was my first exposure to it i really thought it was a whole bunch of fun and it was a riot um and i think once it came out on video. I think it was one of the first video when we got a VCR. I think it was one of the first videos I bought. And I know it's one of the first when it came out on DVD and I switched everything to DVD. It's one of the first DVDs I bought because I actually looked watching it the other night and look, actually looked at the back of my DVD case and it's a DVD from 2002. So it's one of the earliest DVDs I bought. And I've probably watched it once every couple of years ever since. And I just, I just find it a good fun, light movie to watch with a good, you know, a martini or a glass of wine and just kick back and just let it flow over me and um, there's so much to enjoy in it so. well I, I want to draw back actually on, on something that david said real quickly and uh and just sort of to lay it out because some people will like to say that this isn't a bond film and i'm just gonna say you're wrong at this point i think we could all agree here that this is a james bond film well it features james bond but oh. it doesn't i don't know it, again it's not really canon with like other bond but i guess it could be because it's set far enough in the future with an elderly bond i don't know i i, I... yeah but th there's there's no such thing as canon in the bond movies yeah. anyway the continuity yeah, is so loose that's between. true it's it but to get to david's point as he mentioned this is unofficial i hate it when people say this and never say never are unofficial movies because they're not they were officially licensed they were licensed from the Fleming estate they had the rights it's an official james bond movie period uh, the, the man who wrote the lexicon has spoken I, I think that's the gospel right there. I can't <laughs> argue. And uh, I, I won't because I agree with it. But um, it's, it's interesting that you both experienced this film at a very, well, not very young age, but between the two of you, relatively young. Um, Cam, what about you? I obviously as a kid watched all the Bond movies and I was obsessed. And at a certain point, I became aware of this movie. And I remember asking my mom about it. You know, I said, is there like, because it was not something that I don't think was available to rent at our video store. And I, so I asked her about it. And she says, oh, it's terrible. It's just a bad spoof movie. Don't bother. So I really was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I guess it's not a real Bond movie. But I was aware of, you know, spoofs at that point. Because I would have seen things like Naked Gun. Um, maybe some of the Hot Shots movies. Things like that. So uh, Spaceballs for sure. And um, it just kind of got kicked down the road. And then when I was in my early 20s maybe late teens i went to the library like david and they had a copy of uh, casino royale and i was like okay i've watched all the bonds multiple numbers of times 
this is kind of like the lost Bond film. I've never gotten to see at the very least. Let's see what this is. And I took it home. And, um, well, I didn't care for it. <laughs> I was sitting there going, as someone who, you know, grew up watching a lot of spoof movies, um, most spoof movies aren't pushing the, uh, you know, two hour, 15 minute mark. Um, I was completely confused throughout as to what was going on. Didn't really understand a lot of the humor. And uh, it was pretty much torture, I would say, the first time through. And I would say my opinion of it has been refined over the years. But if you ask 20-year-old Cam or what, however old I was, what he thought of Casino Royale 67, it probably would have had expletives um, <laughs> filled into the uh, sentence. I wonder if it still does. No, hmm. it doesn't. Okay. Um, it, it's actually, it's funny then, because by the looks of it, the three of you have all come to this film at quite formative times early years sort of teenage years and in your 20s i myself watched it for my first time in my 30s so uh definitely charting the course there because as cam know and some listeners will remember years back i got a collection of all 24 bond films at the time and i hadn't seen some growing up um i'd caught some on bank holidays but i hadn't caught them all or i caught snippets and that's kind of where the Genesis podcast came from, is where I was texting Cam on WhatsApp back and forth as I watched the 24 and made notes and jokes between them. And then I found out that you know the two other films that are not in the collections uh, existed. And once I finished those films, I sought those two out and watched them. And I remember just thinking to myself, what a strange, strange oddity this this film is. Like I don't, I don't really get it, but I'm sure people got it at the time. Um, but I think this podcast and, and examining, especially the 60s films that we've come through and discussed so far, has really informed my thoughts on it, which we'll get to in a minute. But at the time, I I just dismissed it as, as, as a bit of a footnote. Right. Which, I mean, for a long time, it kind of was regarded. I think it's something that in recent years, a lot of Bond fans have been writing about, you know, like David, and making it more of a presence in pop culture. But for... When I was young, like this was a movie that no one watched or talked about, at least over here in you know my little world of um, you know Vancouver, BC. So I think we've all got different perspectives going into it before we rewatched it for this and rewatched it recently. So I think before we dig into what we think now, it's clear that I've assembled a group of the finest men that ever breathed. <laughs> so Cam, how on earth did we get a Casino Royale film in 1967? Well, um, does anyone have three hours to break down the making of Casino Royale 67? <laughs> it's two podcasts. Um, it's two whole episodes, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do somewhat of the abbreviated version. But, um, Alan, I know you've done a lot of research on the making of this, so feel free to chime in with any clarifications or anything you think is important along the way. Um, this was essentially the brainchild of producer Charles K. Feldman, who had um, made the film What's New Pussycat in 1965, and that was a um, hit film. Has anyone seen What's New Pussycat? I'm afraid so. I, yes. Yeah, yeah, I hated it. <laughs> Same. I, wa- I watched it as research for the, the, the piece I eventually wrote on Casino Royale 67. I was just like, this is just not funny. Yeah. The the best bit is the Tom Jones theme tune that you hear a sneak snap of. Absolutely. In. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's yeah. a Peter Sellers, Woody Allen comedy, question mark. Um, yeah. It's a real chore. With Ursula Andress as well. Yep, um, yep. It's yeah. a real chore to yeah. sit through, but it was a hit movie. Even in the Blu-ray version, I've got the, the like booklet that you get with it says it's a terrible film. And the, <laughs> the, the, the critic um, says, 
the reason why it's so bad is because an Englishman who is a sexual titan is not a tried and tested character to- trope. James Bond, <laughs> yes, but not in a comedy. And I think that hits the nail on the head. You know, I, I mean, it's pretty pretty offensive to you know the the Englishman in the in in this crowd that we can't be sexual titans. Uh, but it's I think I think that's the reason why it's just so. De- even though I love um, uh, uh, his name's just got out of my head. Lawrence of Arabia, help actor's name. Oh, Peter O'Toole. <laughs> Peter O'Toole, thank you. Um, who obviously appears in Casino Royale sixty seven in a bizarre callback to that movie, which makes no flipping sense at all. But I love Peter O'Toole, but I hated that film so much. Yep, that pretty much sums up my experience. Uh, Scott, that's not a recommendation, I guess, uh, for you. I think I've lived for it vicariously through you three just there. I think I, I, that's all I need to know. Yeah. So Feldman had inherited the rights to the Casino Royale novel by Ian Fleming um, from a director-producer, Gregory Radoff, who had purchased them back in the 1950s from Fleming for $6,000. And uh, he'd passed away and the rights had wound up with Feldman. And they flirted with doing a more serious take on Casino Royale. Um, They had Ben Hecht, the writer of many classic films, including Notorious, um, handling, you know, scripting. And he went through a few drafts. There was even one where it was a um, version of Casino Royale, very, you know, pretty much following the novel, but it didn't feature James Bond. It featured an American gangster named Lucky Fortunato, which... I mean, in an alternate world, I would love for that movie to exist. I would love to have the Lucky Fortunato um, James Bond film. Can I just just add to that? Yeah, I did, one of the quotes I saw doing the research is that those hex things are probably, and I'm quoting here, the most brutal James Bond screenplays ever written. Very dark, heavy on sex and violence. Mm, yeah. So uh, Paul Verhoeven would be happy with them then. <laughs> yeah, he would. Yeah, he would like those. Yeah. Yes, and... Um, Feldman did try to pair up with Eon to make an official adaptation of Casino Royale, but they just weren't interested in working with him. And Hecht did also do other adaptations. There was one that is apparently closer to the book, but spins off in a few different directions. And it was quite, as um, as uh, Alan said, much darker. Um, and apparently uh, Hecht handed in his final draft of Casino Royale two days before a fatal heart attack in 1964. So um, those drafts never wound up in the final film, but there was one thing they did introduce, which was the um, James Bond codename theory, which was something that Hecht worked into one of his drafts that they decided, okay, we can use that and let's just try to satirize the entire 60s spy craze because, you know, spoofs were a big deal and um, James Bond is a big deal. So why not try to combine those two things? So just, just to jump in. Yeah. Just to sort of maybe put it in its time and place, this wouldn't be the first spoof of a Bond film, though, because we would have had the Flint Spy no. at this point, at least the first one. And I think Get Smart was on the air, too. So it's not that revolutionary either. No. Weird. <laughs> like, to be fair, that script was written in 64, and this film came out in 67, so there is a, a good three-year difference here. Yeah, and I did see this quote tossed around, which I thought was really strange, where... um. They believed at the time Saltzman and Broccoli had already used everything in the novel except for the Baccarat. So they decided to just structure the entire movie around that. That doesn't make any sense to me. There's a lot of elements in the story of Casino Royale that Saltzman and Broccoli had never used. I don't remember the ball torture scene in Goldfinger. (laughs) Yeah, you got that, Vesper. (laughs) Well, it's... 
It's sort of the, the the testicle torture is a thread through the whole of Bond, though, isn't it? Because you've got his genitalia. I'm choosing my words very carefully here. You've got his <laughs> you've got his genitalia threatened with a laser beam, like it, you know. So there's a whole. I end up writing about castration a lot <laughs> on the website. I've just done it again for what I'm writing, and I'm just like, oh my god, people are going to think I'm obsessed. But clearly, Fleming was obsessed. <laughs> Yeah. My my understanding with the switch to the from the serious to the comedy was after they saw Doctor No, after Feldman saw Doctor No, he realized there was no point in going head to head with Eon. Mm-hmm. So that's when he decided, well, let's go the other direction and make it a comedy. So I think they were thinking about it being a spoof as early as Doctor No. Right. When none of the other spoofs had actually come up. So I think it was done in parallel. It was just the, the, the amount of time it took to get into production was why it ended up coming out so many years later right i mean it's interesting you know i read multiple behind the scenes on this and like from legit sources and it's interesting how often they contradict each other yeah there's there's no real clear picture of what happened with this movie no which is an interesting thing that um to bring it up because alan you're currently working on a a bit of a book on this film i hear i'm hoping to yes i have a uh thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug it but yes i have a pitch that is circulating um um, for a book around the sort of cultural history of Casino Royale. There's already an excellent making of book out there, which is very much a step-to-step how it went through the making of the movie. But I'm hoping to do something that's more around um, why it got made and its reaction. And then it, we've talked about this already. It's sort of resurgence as a cult movie and all the attention it gets and why it now gets that attention um, and its place in sort of modern pop culture and its influences. So, yeah, that is... Uh, currently going the rounds so if there's any publisher out there who's interested just uh, just reach out and um, you can find me on twitter at bond lexicon or through the contact page at bondlexicon.online um, i would love to <laughs> i love it. love to love for somebody to uh, who would love to publish it and then we can really get deep and working on it but yes i am currently doing a lot of background research i love a good plug go on cam <laughs> Ch- checks in so- the mail checks in the mail scott <laughs> so feldman was initially looking at maybe trying to bring Connery over. They also looked at Shirley MacLaine to star. That never panned out. They also looked at a couple of directors like Brian Forbes, who'd done Guns of Navarone, and Clive Donner, who had directed What's New Pussycat. And none of these talks really seemed to go anywhere. And so they decided to go with several directors and approach it with sort of an anthology concept idea. And so you have your group of five. You had... Um, you know, Val Guest, who had uh, written and directed The Day the Earth Caught Fire, as well as Where the Spies Are, which was a David Niven vehicle. Um, you also had Ken Hughes, who had done an adaptation of, of Human Bondage and would go on to do Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You had John Huston, the like classic American filmmaker who had done films like African Queen and Maltese Falcon. Joseph McGrath who was mostly known for doing Beatles music videos. He was a um, Sellers hire, like Sellers fought very hard to get him hired on the project. So that's sort of why he was there because he didn't have a background in major motion pictures. And then just lastly, you had Robert Parrish, who was sort of a journeyman director. He'd done a number of films, but he was also an editor. And from what I read, that was very appealing to them because they thought they might need an editor to kind of give them some guidance in assembling all of these um, distinct visions of the, the project. See, I, I, and this is where I think it, it, Alan's book will come in quite handy, is I heard a completely different version of how the events went down. So uh, that's... Interesting. 
because in, in my book it was uh, i think joseph mcgrath who filmed a lot of it or some of the beginning stuff and then it he got fired it started to crumble and then they started looking at the actual directors it wasn't like a pitch from the beginning to have the directors oh no no that's not my understanding my understanding is that the original idea was to do like an anthology where each director was given their own so one director was going to do a story around the um retired james bond one was going to do one around a serious james bond which was the terence cooper character there was going to be a female jane bond mm-hmm. if they were talking about jane bond as early as 1956 so that you know nothing's new um, so a female James Bond, which was the Shirley MacLaine casting. And then there was going to be one where a courier or croupier, sorry, was recruited and given the code name James Bond to go and play the, uh, the Baccarat game against Le Chiffre. Um, I think that was it. That's yeah, there was originally four, I think four, um, things. Um, and then they decided to do the Sir James Bond Vesper Lynn thing as a linking bridge between each of the, wow. The distinct pieces. Um, there you go. So. That's it corrected. Go on, Cam. <laughs> Is it the only example of a poor manteau comedy film? Because uh, obviously, mm-hmm. poor manteau horror is quite well established. You know, yeah. separate right. yeah. like episodes link with a linking narrative. But I could not. I'm sure there is a poor manteau comedy, but I just couldn't think of one. Yeah, I, nothing's jumping to mind. But I, I agree with you. There has to be something out there. Uh, it feels like there should be. Um, oh, you know what there is? Uh, Amazon Women on the Moon from 1987. That was one that had like um, a lot of um, genre and comedy directors at the time. And it was sort of based around the idea of like watching late night television, where you would switch to different, you know, little short films that would kind of sum up kind of trashy late night um, TV. So that's the best one I've got off the top of my mind. I think the question mark is, did it work when we did it? in this film and should we be doing it so uh which we'll answer (laughs) shortly i'm sure yeah um and so they were working from a screenplay um initially by wolf mankowitz who had uh written where the uh spies are and also co-written um the day the earth caught fire he also did work on dr no that was uncredited because he was concerned the movie would bomb and he wanted his name taken off of it um so uh you know, interesting decision there. They also had input from John Law and Michael Sayers, who were TV writers primarily. And for Michael Sayers, this would be his final film credit. And they also had just like a ton of other people writing on this movie. I think Mankovic said that by the end, there was about 18 names on the writing for this film. And people like Peter Sellers, Joseph Heller, Billy Wilder um, contributed some ideas. Uh, Terry Southern. There was just a ton of people um, adding elements along the way. So um, I'm sure with the WGA, this would have been a nightmare. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it already is. Sure. <laughs> Ken Hughes said that in regards to the production, and Ken Hughes was one of the directors who did, he did the Berlin scenes primarily. Oh. Um, and he said that none of the directors knew what the other one was doing. They had absolutely no idea. And so, again, if you're doing like an Amazon Women on the Moon or something like that, that makes sense. But in a movie where there is like a linear kind of uh, linear narrative supposed to be carrying this through, that's a bizarre decision, a really bizarre decision. Yeah, I think the idea to do the linear narrative came later. Because, right? yeah, I've read that, that each of the directors was given their portion of the script, but the pages for the other portions were blank. Um, <laughs> so they weren't allowed to know what the other directors were, were working on. So. Like, I- I understand trying to make an artistic film, you know, go avant-garde, and especially in the 60s, you're pushing the boundaries, perhaps. But 
when you're gambling on a franchise like James Bond, surely you want to go mass appeal. And it's like they're just trying to push their audience away, even at this stage. Yeah, it's a crazy decision, especially with a property that's fairly new. Um, it's the sort of thing like if you made Casino Royale 67 in like the 80s or 90s or whatever, people would be like, I know James Bond so well that this makes a lot of sense. But in the 60s, it's rather bold to go in this uh, almost like artsy kind of style. But uh, yeah, nonetheless. Do you think the challenge, do you think, oh, this has just occurred to me, but do you think the challenge is not dissimilar to what the Broccoli's are going through right now? What identity to give James Bond? Because we've had so many different flavors of Bond. And did mm. they think, because increasingly the, the Sean Connery movies started semi-seriously and then Terence Young and Sean Connery thrown in the one-liners in Doctor No and then that was pushed a little bit from Russia With Love, massively engulfing Earth and then Thunderball. So it was kind of pushing in that direction and obviously You Only Live Twice, which was, if, if I remember correctly, really slightly after this film. Was it yeah. yeah. By the way, I saw a great, I saw a great, great quote the other week that there was two, two, two Bond movies released in 1967, and this was the one that was actually closest to the Fleming source material. Uh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that when we look at the characters That's in a so minute. So bizarre when I'm you say that, say, but it's like, yeah, it I is. Guess it's true. It's, it's yeah. true, it's isn't totally it? True. <laughs> when you think about it, it's totally true. And I'm just thinking, you know, if you're making your own Bond picture, how do you differentiate it from? the Ian ones and it's like the direction seems to be just going every direction possible. Well, we we recently <laughs> guested on another podcast to talk about Never Say Never Again and we will be talking about it ourselves later this year but you know they had to stick to the Thunderball script more or less but and with their own slight embellishments but for a film that was trying to distance itself in a way it really kept on like harking back to Thunderball, the film, which was so bizarre. Whereas at least this film is, I suppose, trying to be different. Oh, it's trying and it's succeeding <laughs> well, at being very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they had Peter Sellers on board to, you know, obviously star in this movie. And he was coming off of the Pink Panther and a shot in the dark, as well as what's new Pussycat. So like he was, you know, really high. His stock was at an all time high here. And um, nice pun. He. Uh, thank you. Thank you. But he'd also, he was not in the best of straits personal uh, personal life-wise. He'd had a heart attack, and on the set of Casino Royale, he was prone to unpredictable mood swings and violent tantrums. He demanded, for uh, for example, like a set be destroyed after he had a dream that his mother didn't like it. Uh, he also had a complete fear of Orson Welles. The two of them did not get along, and you know uh, Peter Sellers refused to be in a room with him, and so they had to shoot their scenes kind of you know separate. And so there was just a lot of awkwardness. He was also prone to disappear on, uh, from the set. And at one point, he disappeared for three weeks. And so um, they basically had to dismiss him and have uh, director Val Guest concoct that whole bizarre race car scene um, out of a, you know, just a, a random bit to explain why he was leaving the movie. And they decided they would boost up the other Bond characters. So, for example, like the um, Mata Bond and um, Jimmy Bond, Woody Allen character, got boosted up in terms of their screen time to help kind of compensate for losing Peter Sellers along the way. And it's probably a good time to mention as well, we do have a Spymaster interview coming later this week with uh, Miss Jacqueline Bissett, a.k.a. Miss Goodthighs. And she talks a lot about the sort of Peter Sellers experience as it were, and things she had to deal with on set with him. And obviously he was definitely definitely going through some things at the time and, uh, you know, potentially uh, dangerous 
instances occurred on set due to this with him. So yeah, uh, tune into that on Friday. But yeah, a great chat with Jacqueline. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. But uh, I think part of the problem was also Feldman seemed to be very even scared of Peter Sellers that he didn't want to upset his star, and he gave Sellers total control over his segments. So sec- you know, as you said, Sellers renamed the character, rewrote the scripts, brought somebody in literally to do rewrites every day to make sure his lines were funnier than Orson Welles or Woody Allen's that he'd heard. Um, and you talked about uh, the, the the director that he brought off on being fired. Well, actually, Sellers fired him after thump- or thumped him because um, he fell out with him and then threw him off the set. Um, and uh, Feldman had to go and went and bought a Rolls Royce and gave it to the director as an apology um, <laughs> for Sellers' behavior. So, yeah, and he was dis- disappearing off to Sweden to be with Fred uh, for yeah, at the time. Um, and basically his contract, because the movie was running so long, his contract ran out um, and Sellers demanded overages um, and I think his contract said that basically if if the movie went beyond time, he would get paid a week's salary for every day it ran over. But he was the one causing it to run over. So they were like, well, we're not going to we're not going to invoke that clause. You're out of here. And then, as you said, they they just did stuff to cover up the fact that he'd gone missing partway through the production. So. And so this movie had a six million dollar budget that ballooned to twelve million dollars. It doubled. And the finale alone for the movie, the big scene in the Casino Royale where chaos is breaking loose, cost a million dollars and took two months to shoot. And um, Richard Talmadge, who was a stuntman and B-movie director, came in. And he's uncredited, but he is a direct, you know, one of the co-directors of that sequence. So he, there's kind of like a sixth director on Casino Royale. But as I said... Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. That scene had a director? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm questionable <laughs> i think it, it makes a lot of sense though that a stunt man would be co-directing that when you see some of the things like uh you know Smokey and the bandit some of those 70s comedies that would come later that, where they would have stuntmen direct them because it's all just kind of chaos organized chaos <laughs> i don't know if this is so organized though <laughs> maybe there was a lot more sense in the three hour version <laughs> maybe there's a longer version that the original cut was three hours oh no Oh no! They cut forty-five <laughs> minutes out of the movie. A casino royale. There was also scenes that never got filmed after the sellers went. There were scenes and stuff that was in the screen screenplay that never got filmed. So, I, I can uh, buy that the seller stuff missing, but I, I, I don't know. Another forty-five minutes of this just just scares me to my core. <laughs> Can, can I just go back to the budget, Cam? Yeah. Um, you mentioned the budget, but some sources actually reckon that Feldman's put in almost as much of his own personal money. Oh, God. Like I said, he was buying people Rolls Royces and all sorts of weird stuff. So uh, some of the sources I've seen says the final the final spend, never mind the budget, the final spend was more around the 20 million mark. And that's 1967. That's insane. Money. Yes. That's yeah. so insane. Um. And I mean, for example, you only live twice cost nine point five million <laughs> for comparison. I was about to ask what were the other ones costing. So yeah, wow, that's uh and yet this is okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. They built a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> and what what did we end up with? A, a seal with a double O seven logo on his on his neck. <laughs> uh, you know what? Not a bad trade off. I do like the seal. I do too. But uh <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so massive budget. Domestically, it did $22.7 million, international 19 for a worldwide total of $41.7 million. Um, You know, it's it's... They probably kind of broke even on that one. I would have to imagine. Well, I heard it was. I heard it was a success. Like there was queues around yeah. the block. Mm. People were clamoring to see the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe not after the first time. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very curious if you were to go back to 1967 and see what the word of mouth was like. Like the week to week financial, um, you know money coming in on that one it may have been a bit of a drop-off kind of like a morbius level drop-off <laughs> that, that that joke only lands for you cam i think because i've not seen it no oh, i've not seen well. it either <laughs> there you go me either sorry <laughs> okay well nonetheless um <laughs> sorry jared leto <laughs> so um as i said yeah 41.7 million worldwide but for comparison you only live twice did 111.6 that year so it was the much bigger hit and the top three for the year number one was the graduate number two was the jungle book number three was guess who's coming to dinner and just lastly this movie had an oscar nomination for best song for the look of love this was the first bond song to get an oscar nomination so uh the heck with you shirley bassey and the first one sung by a queer artist as well i think i'm just mm. going through them in my head but there you go Interesting. Okay, yeah, Burt Bacharach. No. And no, no, not Burt. No. Um, Dusty Springfield, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to out Burt Bacharach. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> Exclusive, folks. Right. And so it was nominated. It did not win. I looked up the winner of best song that year. It was Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. So um, I don't really remember that song. It's crazy, though. Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book was nominated and did not win. I'm like, that, that probably, you know, if you're looking at it from the point of view of looking backwards, that probably should have won. And uh, also, um, this had a Grammy nomination for Best Score. It also did not win that. I will, I will just throw it out there. We, maybe we can discuss it in depth later. But it's funny how some of the weird outer edge bonds, like Honor Majesties and this, have maybe the best songs. Not Never Never Again, obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah, Honor Majesties and this, probably two of the, the best bond songs of all time that have also stood the test of time because you still hear those on the radio whereas i don't often hear uh i don't know what was moonraker's song moonraker, moonraker. Oh. <laughs> sure. there you go i don't hear that very often uh, so that sort of sums up the car crash of the behind the scenes on casino royale 67 okay i mean that took us 20 minutes so you can only imagine what's going to happen now when we unleash <laughs> the reviews of this film. Uh, okay. Guests always go first. David, I'm going to throw it to you. What do you think about Casino Royale 67 in 2022? I sort of love it. <laughs> and it's partly because I spent so long in its company. Uh, about uh, It's about 18 months ago where I decided to do my queer reviews so if you've ever been on my website you'll see that i i break down a bond film not reviewing a sense of giving it a star rating or something but kind of seeing how queer it is and so i break it into um different sections bond or in this case bonds um and then the villains the allies the girls and then any kind of camp elements and that's kind of like the kitchen sink anything left over and i thought when i started this i thought oh it'll be one of those because I'm not going to take this one as seriously as the Bond films, which tend to run somewhere between like five and 13,000 words. And then 
I started it, I thought it'll be about two or three thousand words and it ballooned to about nine and a half thousand in the end because there was just so much to say about it. And I think perhaps taking it in bite-sized chunks is the best way to take this movie because it is a bit like eating a whole bag of sweets or drinking too much delicious alcohol. Eventually it kind of becomes a bit tiring and you're overwhelmed with it. So I think breaking it down into chunks made me appreciate it a lot more. I love it for its queer elements. I already mentioned the peace war. What, what, uh, what Bond movie begins with Bond essentially having a gay cruising moment in, in a public convenience? Well, actually, there are two others. Goldeneye and Casino Royale 2006. Both of them begin <laughs> with James Bond in a toilet accosting another man so you know that that you know it's 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 the first time that this happens on screen you've got such it's such un, unconventional elements you've got so much like female gaze in this where it's actually looking at the men whereas in bond films it's usually the other way around not always and then you've got as i mentioned it a bit earlier the main idea i think of this film and it is very difficult to kind of find a theme that runs through this film but it's that anyone can be James Bond. The fact there are seven James Bonds and there are three men and four women who are James Bond kind of upsets that gender imbalance a little bit. And there's that, there's the central kind of, if there is a theme, it's that, I think it's probably the tension, I'm probably being a bit generous saying there's a theme to this film, to be honest, hmm. but there's there's a tension between kind of giving into your, giving into your desires and ex exercising some kind of self-control and it's almost like that's what this film is really about. It's kind of like, you know, it's 60s and it's kind of crazy and out there and it's free love. But at the same time, it's kind of saying some of those things are a bit wrong and it's kind of a bit repressed in some ways. And I think as a queer person, I think I can sort of relate to that angle. That was the that was the kind of conclusion that I came to, whether it's, you know, objectively, it is not a great film, but. There's there's just so much in there. It's such a rich text if you want to approach it from any kind of quasi-academic standpoint. I, I was quite similar in my notes, which I'll get to in a second. But um, I, I also give you kudos for knowing the other two films off the, you know, directly where a Bond meets a man in the toilets. And I appreciate you knew them. Yeah, you know, very quickly. There are others, but I'm not. Oh, people will think I'm obsessed with that as well as castration. <laughs> so I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> there is an interesting thread, though, as you said, like a, sort of the male insecurity here, and it's interesting because you have like the Bond franchise is a large thing, is such a cultural force of sort of this, you know, this womanizing character, this kind of alpha male character and it's interesting how this movie is almost looking at how men could be intimidated by james bond and that's sort of an interesting thread that it's examining for comedy and so much of comedy is driven by insecurity and sort of feelings of inadequacy so that is kind of interesting especially when you consider what a mess it is that that thread does carry through in almost every segment really well you got to think that there was was it five directors plus bonus directors thrown in there too? Like someone must have put something together at some point. So I, I'm glad that you find that in there, David. Um, Alan, what about you? Well, I actually watched this in, this time around a couple of days ago in a very different order. Um, I There was a note, I know there was a recent thread on one of the Bond Facebook things about this movie after people have been to see the recent screening at the Prince Charles Theatre. Um, and there was that sparked a thread and there was an interesting thread and Raymond Benson put in there he was like well you do know that we talked about the three hour edit well even while they were doing the edits it was like 
Part of the reason it's a mess is because the studio went in and did their own edit because they wanted Peter Sellers on screen earlier. Oh, does that explain why that he's at that? It. That pre-credit sequence is so strange because it is right. This, so that's yeah. why he was in the pre-credit sequence, and that's why a lot of the story is out of order. So Raymond Penson put up, try watching it in this order, and he put up a, a screening order. And so I thought I'm going to do that, and I rewatched it in that order, and it makes a lot more sense. Hmm. Um, and it, it basically ends up being what we would just that port, more of that portmanteau type thing because if you watch it in the, in the order that, that Raymond suggests you get the David Niven retired Bond story arc then you get him recruiting the female spy which is his daughter but was originally a separate female spy and then they, she goes to the house in Berlin where she finds out about Le Chief and then Le Chief's blackmail thing fails, so he said, I need to set up a Baccarat game. And then you get the story of the Peter Sellers character being recruited and playing. And then, of course, you get the last 15, 20 minutes when it all goes crazy anyway. <laughs> but it it makes, it, it just moving these three or four scenes around, it's like it's a completely different movie. The through line, the narrative through line, and you pick up the fact that there's actually, despite the other directors not supposedly knowing what was happening, there is actually verbal clues in each segment that leads to the next segment. And it works a lot more narratively. And I'd never, and I was like, wow, this is like a completely, just moving these scenes around, make it into a completely different movie, which I thought was fascinating because it shows there was somebody somewhere had some idea of a through line um, and how it put together. And it, it was clearly the, the edit that really, you talked earlier about them needing an editor. I think the studio basically went in and butchered whatever edits they put together um, just to make sure that the star was got more screen time up front. Um, so that was that was interesting watching it that way. Um, I love the themes that sort of you two have mentioned about, you know, the ideas that anybody can be James Bond. Um, and for me, it was also, I think, a lot of wish fulfillment stuff. Um, you know, first time I saw it as a teenager, it's fun, it's sexy, it's got lots of pretty women in it, um, you know, and it's you've also got the, um, as much as I hate Woody Allen, um, his character of the the hero hero worshiping the uncle and trying to be his uncle but being cowed by that and trying to figure out how to sort of top his hero in a way uh, i thought made sense so uh, i've just sort of each time i watch it i find something different be that either thematically or even just some of the gags some of the references some of the fleming callbacks there's so many fleming callbacks in this movie mm -hmm. um and pretty much every time i the one that got me this time, which I don't know why I'd never noticed it in the millions of times I watched before, we were talking about the, you know, the 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 the, 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 the threat of castration and stuff. When he's torturing Peter Sellers, and Sellers gets up out of the chair, and Orson Welles says, "Oh, don't worry about the chair with the hole in it. The upholsterers are coming in tomorrow." And I just like I'd never noticed that line before, um, but it's a perfect callback to the novel Casino Royale, which, if you hadn't read the novel, it wouldn't have meant anything at that point. Um, it would have only been a callback that somebody who'd actually read Fleming would have got. Um, and the movie is just full of so many Fleming callbacks um, and, of course, references to um, the Connery. I love the lines about, um, you know, that sexual acrobat and his gadget laden Aston Martin and things that they're poking. They're poking fun at the Eon stuff, but they're also poking fun, but actually paying Fleming's source material it's due as well I think throughout it so uh, again a very complex movie that I think you can just each sitting you can take it in a different way and get different things out of it each time you watch it through 
whatever order you watch it in. That's that's truly fascinating to me just to hear about the whole the different order i had not stumbled upon that before and i think we'll put that in the show notes below if we can cam mm-hmm. yeah for sure just so people can go and check it out that way up we'll get it off of you later alan but it, it kind of reminds me if that's the case this film now begins to remind me of the avengers from the 90s yeah you know we did a, a special on that in summer last year we spoke to the director we spoke to the film's writer and that was butchered by the studio in the editing phase. Like they destroyed it completely. And what you get is a mess. And so it, it begins to beg the question that maybe in this order, as Alan was alluding to, maybe there is a more coherent film in there. It's And it's not so much the fault of the lack of direction, the lack of a good editing style. Maybe it is just that last hurdle where it fell down and was torn to pieces by the studio. Yeah. Yeah. We learn something new every day. But Cam, what about you? You were probably the most sour out of the out of the original thoughts. So where do you stand? I think it says a lot about the state of 2022 and its effect on on me. But I sat watching this movie last night and I don't know that it's ever made more sense to me when I was watching it that I was actually like <laughs> able to like follow the narrative and be like, oh, okay, this actually connects. And I began to get very concerned about that because <laughs> I don't think that speaks to a very healthy state of mind. But nonetheless, I guess that's where I am after this was my third time watching it um, last night. I will never, I don't think, love this movie. It's one I find, I mean, at the time when this is put out in 1967, this is the second longest Bond movie. Uh, Thunderball just beats it by like a minute. But that's crazy when you look at the ones that came before it. And to me, this movie always feels very long. And at a certain point, it begins to really drag on me, especially when you get into the um, Berlin sequences and some of the hallucinogenic stuff, the psychedelic 60s stuff. Um, but what I find interesting about this movie is just, had this movie just been a straightforward spoof of 60s Bond, I don't know that anyone would remember it really or talk about it in an interesting way because you had the Flint stuff, you had the Mad Helms, you had all these other lesser, maybe known 60s spy spoofs that are all kind of doing the same thing. This movie being this sort of gigantic mess is what makes it interesting and why I think it has this legacy and why we're, you know, in the year 2022 sitting down to talk about it because it does sort of demand that sort of attention I remember when I was in um, postmodern lit in university, we um, had to cover a book called Piccolo Mondo. And it was a book written by four authors. And in the story, every character's name was just a letter. So it was like A or B or C. And every chapter was just um, written by a different author. And they would only look back at like the last couple of lines or something like that of the chapter before them. And of course, you know, this was written in the 1960s, so it's um, (laughs) possibly LSD-fueled. It's crazy. It is an experience that you'd say is not a very good story, but is interesting because of the fact it's sort of this time and place and the approach to an artistic, you know, story and what they are doing with that and how they're trying to break kind of the molds of standard storytelling. That's kind of what Casino Royale is. It's a 1960s film. It's clearly made by people that are you know embracing that 60s lifestyle and so like in that respect it's a fascinating movie and i one i find very interesting but it's one i find very just unsatisfying from a storytelling point of view well i'm going to jump in and say that you three are all mad <laughs> you're all you mean insane. you're not going to join the casino royale fun movement 
I'm not. I'm not <laughs> going to join the love fest. I, 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 I tell you why. I mean, I actually was one of the people who who travelled to the PCC to watch it, um, and it was probably the second time I ever saw it. And, and watching a film in the cinema is different to watching it at home. Absolutely, you, you're focused on it completely. There is no phones. There is no dog barking there's no distractions unless someone's munching popcorn really loudly um and i took my better half uh, hannah who creates the artwork for the show and she was furious with me that i took her to this film absolutely furious that i made her sit through this film and i just have to sort of i sometimes need to take my bond and spy film hat off and just remember that okay we're all experts i, I i'm not but you guys are all experts um and remember that there's a general audience out there and i wonder i think on that level i think this film is an utter failure yeah it just doesn't work i mean my sister i had a similar experience showing it to my sister because she's a big bond fan but she sat through this movie and it was like torture for her just to get through yeah but i and it's interesting in my notes i wrote down i underlined the word perspective and it's interesting that we've all come at this from a different perspective because this film is to the average movie-going audience, if you put this in cinemas today, I think people would walk out. Yeah. And I don't think that's a revelation to say. But if you are a, a scholar of, of film, or you love Bond, and you, or you just love like dissecting art, you love digging into art, I think there is a very rich tapestry here to look at and, and to really sort of examine. Because, okay, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice are great films. They both made the knock list. And we're still talking about them now because they're Bond films. But are they really pushing boundaries? Are they really trying something different? Or are they just going off of the Goldfinger script hmm. and just adding more money to it? That's a question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I can't say this is a good film. I can't sign off on that. <laughs> what I can say is this is a very interesting film. And, and I think this is why I wanted to get us together to talk about it because... There's so much to dig into. Ultimately, <laughs> you could talk for hours about the film, and, but I just need to remind myself that on the top of it, there is a cinema goer that would just walk out. I think that um, I, I agree with you. So, sorry, Dave. no, no. I, I was gonna, I was gonna agree with you, but then politely disagree. Go, go for it, Alan. Yeah, yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you for the average cinema goer. If they just come into this cold, mm-hmm. um. Today's cinema goer would not got it. A cinema goer in the 60s, 67, that was in the middle of the psychedelic period and Free Love and Sergeant Pepper and all the other stuff that was going on at that time, they would have, a certain generation would have got it. Perhaps some of the older generation wouldn't have. Um, I think my, like I said, I think my dad just enjoyed it because it had Peter Sellers in it. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of the stuff he didn't get or didn't enjoy about it. Um, but he loved it because it was a Peter Sellers movie. I think there's people who would have gone it just because go to see it just because of who was in it. Um, those names don't mean anything to today's cinema goers. People don't go today just to see a Peter Sellers movie. So I think today's audience, yeah, I think it would either leave them like your better half furious or cold or bemused. Um, but I think Cam said it. For me, the one word when people ask me about this, this this movie, I think, is the word that Cam just used. It's a fascinating movie. If you've got an interest in film or the arts yeah. or Bond, or even you've got an interest in popular history or an interest in the 60s, 
Um, somebody actually, because I mentioned over, I was at my writers group last night and somebody, um, I mentioned that we were doing this podcast and somebody said, well, so what is it about that movie that you like so much? And I'm like, I don't know if like is the right word. Mm. It fascinates me. I enjoy it. And it's such a perfect time capsule, time capsule of the 1960s psychedelic zeitgeist. And that's what it is for me. So do I love it as a movie? No, but I do find it incredibly fascinating. So I, I totally take your, top, your point about perspective, particularly looking at it as a man in the street, woman in the street, just somebody going in cold as a movie going in 2020. Um, we would probably be completely thrown off by it. So I totally agree. It's an insane ask as well to um, make a spoof kind of James Bond film that's this long. Like that to me is insane to do that and expect an audience to really strap themselves in for that. Although, I mean, 60s, it is notable. This was a period where movies got really long. And, you know, as I said, Dr. Doolittle won best song that year. Dr. Doolittle is almost three hours long, if not three hours long. And that was kind of that bloated Hollywood period. So I guess maybe at the time, something this long wouldn't have raised as many eyebrows. But looking at it now, I'm like, this is insane that this movie is this long. Yeah, I remember going to the movies that, back then, and I expected the movie to have an intermission. Hmm. I think all movies would be improved with an intermission. Intermission, yeah. yeah. No yeah. doubt An overture and an intermission. But, yeah. But, so for something to run two hours was probably, well, you know, I, okay. I, so. I take your point, but I, I almost, well, I'm curious now because David had a retort for me and I want to hear it. Yeah, so when a film feels, we've all seen really long films that actually feel really short. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've all seen really short films that feel really long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've read bits and pieces about this, but this is kind of mostly my own conclusion. So it might not be right, but I have, I have a theory that, if a film feels is really long but doesn't but kind of feels long but we're with it it's usually because it's spectacle i've never seen doctor doolittle but i love those kind of big overblown musical type things you know as there's always that bit like with a shakespeare play around the kind of four fifths of the way through where it's like just get to the end please and then it kind of <laughs> picks it picks up and then the other side is, you know, most most Western cinema, at least not all cinema, but most Western cinema is based on cause and effect. Something happens in one scene, it then leads on to the next scene, and then that leads on to the next scene, and that leads on to the next scene. Now, based on what Alan said about the 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 re-edit that he heard about from from Raymond Benson, it sounded like this film may have had more of a kind of cause and effect structure, but it was always going to be kind of slightly disconnected, almost like extended vignettes sort of thing, and that's the sort of thing which which makes something feel long when there isn't that thing that that clear thread from scene to scene to scene to scene. I mean there are such bizarre like edits. I mean the the, the most jarring which you've already mentioned is when Peter Sellers gets in the race car and then zooms off the screen you never find out what happens and the next moment he's strapped to a chair. So there's no yeah, cause yeah. there's no relationship between those scenes at all and it's those moments because they take such it actually hurts our brains. You know, as you probably know, I work in education. And so I, I have to look at the best way to design learning sequences. Mm. And the best way to design a learning sequence is you require minimal mental effort to get from one place to another. This film requires massive mental effort. Your brain... <laughs> 
hurts so much watching this movie. If you're prepared to go with this movie, you have to sit there. And it's, it's one of those bizarre ironies that a film which is supposedly kind of fun and frothy and whatever, if you're actually going to get the most enjoyment from this film, you know, strap yourself in for an intellectual kind of marathon because your brain has to make those connections between all the different bits and pieces. It's exhausting watching this movie. Can I can I actually just give you a quote that I got when I was doing the, the research from somebody? Um, on, a response for, on one, a part of that Facebook thread. It actually said, if you're trying to make sense of Casino Royale, that's not the way to enjoy it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I saw it the first time, I was infuriated by... Actually, it was a, a seller scene, but it was actually his death scene where he's gunned down by Vesperland. I remember just being completely baffled as to what I was even seeing at that point. And you're right, like, it's a, a movie where you have to sit there and do the mental exercise connecting scene to scene because they'll have characters toss off just, like, kind of a line or two, but it's it's the, like, creakiest of connective tissue. It's like, okay, if I basically take that line and extrapolate from there, I can understand how we get to this scene. That's kind of what you have to do, which is an interesting choice in a comedy because so much of comedy is built on setup, payoff, setup, yeah. payoff. This movie very frequently as a comedy doesn't have the setups nope. and it's just a series of punchlines, but you're like, wait, I don't know what the joke was. <laughs> or it has some of the longest longest setups, like the the the, um, the stutter setup, the, yep. the gag with the stutter. Yeah. I mean, they run that for what, five, six minutes before you actually get the payoff. Um, yeah. Just to David's point about that scene from the race car to the capture, that's actually one of the scenes that never got filmed, uh. which is why you've got that horrendous jump cut because that... The, the explanation of how he got captured was never filmed because they'd lost Peter Sellers by that point. So, Which which mm. makes total sense. And we have to remember that this film went through, as Cam pointed out, trials and tribulations in terms of putting it together. Mm. So I yeah. think what we'll do do now is is talk about things that we liked for a little bit. So I'll just pick one thing each. So I'll, I'll throw it to you first, Alan. What's, what's something you really like about this film? Cool. There's lots of things. Um, I just, at the end of the day, I think I joined the Casino Royale fun movement when I was 15. I just find it fun. Yes, it's got problems. Yes, it's got issues. Yes, it's got a weird backstory. But I just enjoy watching it once every couple of years. I just find it a fun movie. Maybe I've just got a weird sense of humor, but I just enjoy it as a fun movie. Well, is there any segment in the film that really stands out to you as like just the perfect kind of moment within the movie or something like, uh, you know, is there, because obviously we have these various directors doing different sections. Is there one that jumps out to you more so than the others? I actually like the introduction of Marta Bond. Yeah. 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 I think that's a great, I think it's a beautifully choreographed thing, but I actually, and it still makes me laugh, is the one where she actually asks the, the guy who's um, with the fan at the back of him, she, uh, do you speak English or do you understand English? And he goes, no. <laughs> And then they, they're like, oh, okay. And then they carry on talking about their secret mission in English. I, I don't know why. Just that one throwaway line just cracks me up every time I, I hear it. So, um, yeah, I, I like that introduction of the Martyr Bond sequence um, and his, how uncomfortable Sir James Bond is about introducing himself. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, just to speak towards the, the Martyr Bond uh, intro, I mean, it's interesting because we spoke about Mata Hari like two years ago at this point. Um, it's nice to see a, a Matahari connection come back. But hmm. comparing the dances between that and Greta Garbo, I, I think Casino Royale wins. Far more money spent on it. Um, huh. Well, I mean, 
yeah, just the filmmaking in that introduction scene is really fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, it's the sort of sequence that's so strong. You're like, boy, they should have just done a separate movie about that. Like, just make that the focus. Do like a 90-minute, you know, just crazy psychedelic Mata, Mata Bond uh, story. I would watch that. It, it does go to show people who, who think that you can't. But you can tell a story with a female protagonist in the James Bond universe. Doesn't have to be led by a guy. Yeah, very much, very much so. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that Waylon Mill movie. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, pardon the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research—we don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalog to dive into, become a true Spy Hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s or you can find the link in the show notes below now cam on with the spy jinx but um david what about you something you liked okay i'm gonna be quick i promise but three things i've had to get there are lots like alan there are so much in so many bits of this movie my favorite segment in the whole film is the berlin sequence Yes. Uh, it's very Dr. Cabinet of Caligari, uh, Dr. Caligari, yeah. um, um, uh, German expressionist kind of visually. But I love the Frau Hoffner, I've forgotten the actress's name, but the person who plays Frau Hoffner. Uh, you are quite insane. It's like that that exchange just seems to kind of typify the entire movie for me. It's kind of that backwards logic sort of thing. And it ends with Richard Wattis, who's, I love the actor in Carry On Movies. And actually he was born literally about five minutes from where I'm sitting right now um, in the UK. And that kind of, kind of, that, that kind of fussy British actor, obviously gay, um, but played those sorts of fussy man from the ministry type character. I love that sequence. The second one, um, Deborah Carr. I mean, I love Deborah Carr in anything. Yes. But mm -hmm. Deborah Carr in this film is just off the actual scale. That that whole that whole explanation <laughs> yeah. she gives, which God knows what seven year old me thought of this, but that whole explanation she gives. And it's, it's so sexually kind of provocative and coded, all of that sequence with Deborah Carr. But she's talking about the like the backstory of this family like hundreds of years ago, that there was a succession of rapes that happened and whatever. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. But at the same time, the way she's delivering all those lines is just like so matter of factly. You just think, whoa. Um, yeah. So God knows what seven year old me thought of all that kind of stuff. And the last thing is just a single line of dialogue that never fails to make me laugh out loud which is when peter sellers with jacqueline who will be on your podcast soon um says my goodness so he's being drugged with the champagne my goodness this is strong shampoo and it's just the way he says shampoo <laughs> rather than champagne which even as a seven-year-old made me laugh and it still makes me laugh today i when i heard that um that shampoo line the first time i thought it was because it was like a they didn't have a time to reshoot like it was a, a like an off cut, and that's all they had to work with, and he just flubbed his lines. Right. 
I wanted to just mention it was Anna Quayle played Frau Hoffner. Oh, that's it. To, uh, yeah. yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. She, she's great. Yeah, I mean, just the like art direction of that whole sequence is unbelievable too. Um, the performances in this are just so... You can say the movie's a complete disaster, and I think part of the problem is a lot of characters don't interact with each other. Mm. Like Because it's segmented, you don't have that kind of flow of characters. But you can't say that everyone who's showing up isn't committed to the cause. Like, I mean, I, Peter Sellers obviously had a lot of personal issues, but the performance comes across in the movie and everyone else feels like they're kind of, I don't know if they're on the same page, but they're all conjuring up a weird energy that somehow all meshes together fairly well. I mean, just to, just to talk about that, that Germany sequence, uh, I, the Berlin sequence, I should say, beautifully staged. Like, again, it's like another episodic part of this film that really works for me. It's one of my favorite parts. I just, and part of the thing that works for me in that scene is it just feels like it's a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Like, it's just absolute comedy at times, especially when they're doing the the, the auction. And, it, you know, this is, uh, it, it just feels like a skit out of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And, and that's really what works for me, especially with the, with the chap who's saying, oh, there's some sort of a war on. Um, that's yeah. Richard Wattage. <laughs> that's, that's Richard Wattage. Brilliant. Yeah. All of that scene, went, and he's like, um, they're asking him how they're going to bid, and the, you know, some are standing, some are sitting down, and then the one British guy's like, ah, either way, I don't know, and that, that just, um, yeah, that never fails to uh, to crack me up much, like David. But uh, Cam, what's something you liked? Uh, the opening credits remind me a lot of Monty Python as well with the animation. I just kept thinking of that. So, where Scott, you may know better. Um, where was Monty Python at this point in 1967? Uh, Flying Circus was on the air. Okay. Uh, I think. I will double check. But yeah, that, that's all they... I mean, they had done radio stuff around the same sort of time. But yeah, Flying Circus was on the air. Because I do wonder if there was a Python influence going on throughout this movie, just because it's out there in the pop culture landscape. Uh, actually, just to correct myself, Monty Python's Flying Circus didn't start until 69 continued on to oh. 73 so this is a uh, this is pre terry gilliam's art style um wonderful stuff though that that, that credit sequence good shout cam it would not shock me if terry gilliam was a big fan of this movie honestly that would make perfect sense <laughs> he yeah. probably understands it actually he, he's probably the only man who gets it so are we saying <laughs> casino royale was a cultural trailblazer and influenced so much that followed including <laughs> including the eon bond series mm. i i would say so there's, there's a lot of things oh, yeah. in this movie uh, that that was picked up in the bond movies or even talking about spoofs austin powers the fembots mm -hmm. i mean yep. oh yeah clearly from here a lot of austin Powers. you know when we did the Derek flint thing we talked about how austin powers was to a large extent a remake of Derek flint well if you also throw in some goldfinger and a large proportion of this movie um into the mix that made up austin powers um and as you said there's a lot of things that got you know the strong female protagonist is 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 in here first um female 007 first in here money penny on a mission yeah money penny on a mission yeah yeah, and also just the number of people who were in this movie who yeah. were had already been in the Eon Productions or went went on to be in the Eon Productions. There is a large amount of people who were uh, were both in Eon Productions and in Casino Royale '67. There was a massive cast in this movie. The whole Angels of Death sequence in Honor Majesties, which I love, with obviously you know him playing a queer coded 
um, you know, um, Hillary Bray and having people feel up his legs below the table. That is basically ripped from this movie. That really jumped out. Because that's not in the Flem that's not in the Fleming novel. So, you know, Bond working his way through the Angels of Death, that's essentially what happens in Casino Royale sixty seven in the sequence with David Niven and Deborah Carr. And funnily enough, one of the people in the uh, Scottish castle is in the uh, Angels of Death. There you go. Yeah, Angela, Angela Scalar, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, his, his, uh, his bath time thermometer in this one is <laughs> Ruby Bartlett in On a Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, yes. yeah. there you go. Um, from, uh, Cam, did you give us a like? No, I haven't. Um, for me, I just want to talk about just the visuals of this movie. The art direction was credited to three people, uh, Ivor, uh, Ivor Beddoes, Lionel Couch, and John Howell. And I think just the set decoration of this movie is unbelievable. It's so beautiful. I unfortunately only have the DVD version here. There's not like a really uh, decent affordable Blu-ray option in North America. It's just not a movie that's, I don't know, like, uh, Alan, do you know of any decent Blu-ray version? Mine's the German edition. Yeah. Uh, no, I like you. I have the DVD. I've no, never found a Blu-ray over here. So. I have the same version as David. Yeah, not a lot of love for it over on these shores. And so, like, I would love to just watch the visuals of this movie. And the set deck, like, there is, like, the scene with all the tigers and everything. The stuffed tigers. Or even the um, M's Manor with all the animal heads on the walls and all that. The big villain lairs, you know, the Smirsh headquarters. Everything looks unbelievable and very very expensive and even just like throwaway moments i think of um when you have peter sellers and ursula andress and there's like the scene where it's the look of love kind of montage where they're walking and the fish tank is in the foreground looks so beautiful or a moment where she is for some reason that i could never explain jumping on the bed in slow motion (laughs) with feathers flying all around i'm like I don't have any idea what's going on at the moment, but it looks incredible. So, like, just from a visual sense, this movie is so accomplished and so beautiful. You could take so many shots of this and put them up on the One Perfect Shot social media account, although I don't know if they'd get that many likes, but nonetheless, you could totally do it. And also, just another like for me I want to throw in, I think Orson Welles is an absolute blast here. Um, uh, From what it sounds like, he insisted that he do his own magic act um, in the movie. Ah, wise call. I'm on board for it. Orson Welles is always someone who's just magnetic to watch, and I love watching him here. I think he's a great chief. Yeah, he's great, yeah. Yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah, true. Um, I've got two that I wanted to shout out that we haven't had yet. Cam kind of brushed on my first one, but I I genuinely think Peter Sellers made a good bond, like in kind of a, a man growing into the role sort of way like i would like to have seen the full film with him there's that moment where where the scene where he's actually with jacqueline Bissett, and he's you know he's got the gun out he's playing it straight it's not really much comedy in the scene and you know shoots the the champagne ball but he looks the part and he i i want to see more of of what would have been with peter sellers i think it's a shame that we didn't get that but uh yeah i i think he actually in the stuff he's in is really good yeah um, and the other thing I, I want to talk about, which we brushed on earlier, is the soundtrack. As Cam said, you know, Look of Love, first Bond song to get an Oscar nod. Didn't win it. But just the, the rest of the score itself from the credit sequence to the, you know, at Casino Royale song is just a ton of fun. And I think 
in moments where the film is losing itself in terms of plot, you can always fall back to the visuals and the soundtrack. The soundtrack is I, I, is just superb. And that's one of the things I do find, that people who don't like the movie still adore the soundtrack, particularly in the Bond community. I see so many people say... And just, it, you know, it has that reputation outside of the Bond community as being one of the best movie soundtracks written. And I know a lot of audiophiles use it um, as like a test bed for you know audio um, systems and stuff like that because just of the, the range it's got in it um, there was um there was one of those james bond challenges online recently and they challenged people to pick the top four cues and one of mine was from this film it's uh the uh, money penny goes for broke where she's mm-hmm. interviewing yeah. all of them which is such an amazing kind of gender reversal where um, a, a woman gets to effectively kind of work her way through a bunch of men. You know, imagine that in a in an Eon Bond film. You know, it's always the other way around. But the music for that sequence is... I mean, obviously, I find that sequence absolutely hilarious, but the, the, the music for that really makes it. What's interesting is, like, the Bond franchise seem to... And I mean, like the quote-unquote unofficial bonds, whatever you want to call them, always seem to struggle to find a musical identity. You look at Never Say Never Again, and it's you know it doesn't know what to do as compared to those Eon films. Whereas I feel like this movie had a very clear sense musically as to what to do, and I think holds together beautifully. And, you know, I mean, it didn't get an Oscar nom for score, but had it gotten that nomination, I would have totally understood why. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very strong. I just want to take us back to something David just brought up, which is the the anti-female spy device. Ah, oh, yeah. Um, this is really just a question for Cam, but gents, if you have seen the film, feel free to chirp in. But uh, Cam, did you get major throwbacks to My Favourite Spy? <laughs> I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we didn't get any uh, uh, pantyhose uh, rolling up the leg or anything like that, unfortunately. No. But uh, yeah, the, the whole like kiss, checking how their kissing was uh, was actually done by Bob Hope in the 50s. That's true. It's true. Yeah, Bob Hope did it first, folks. But uh, we've spoken a lot already about dislikes, so maybe we won't dwell on it too much. But I'll just go around everyone again. Maybe just something, even if it's a tidbit, but just something you maybe disliked about the film you wanted to discuss. Let's go with Alan first. Um, I think it's the gratuitous cameos in the last 15 minutes. The the George Raft and um, Jean, oh, Jean-Paul Belmondo. Jean- Thank you. Struggling there. Yeah. Um, who basically can't even translate his own language. Uh, med does not mean ouch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Um, so, yeah, those, you know, particularly as they, they have them in the trailer. Um, and as much as in the trailer is pretty much their entire scene in the movie. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's those gratuitous um, two cameos, I think, sort of throw me out f- for a while. I find a lot of the cameos in this movie, like, they didn't find them things that were particularly fun to do. Like, you want, when you have a great cameo, you want it to really pop. Like, everyone goes, oh my God, do you remember that moment when so and so showed up and did this? Yeah. And you more walk out of this one going, that was weird when that person showed up. Like, the whole Peter O'Toole appearance for me is kind of a head scratcher. And yeah, the ones you mentioned in the finale, it's like, okay. And even William Holden, like, huge, huge star. Um, John Huston, so exciting to see him in the movie. But, like, they don't contribute anything that's interesting. Yeah, at least William Holden and John Huston have a bit to do with driving the narrative at the beginning. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, yeah, the, and the Peter O'Toole thing, I think basically he was on set and the two of them were drinking buddies and it's like, do you want to, I don't know, do you want to be in this scene? Um, so I don't know. But, uh, Speaking of, um, I just want to briefly ask a question that has tormented my sister and I for a while. Maybe, you know, Alan or David, one of you can answer this. So there is the scene where Matta Bond is escaping and there's the manhole and she pulls it off and it plays the what's new pussycat. And I'm reminded of that because Peter O'Toole, of course, there's a, you know, obviously tie in with that movie. Does anyone understand that joke? Because I watched what's new pussycat hoping to understand that manhole joke and I still don't get it. I think it was just an inside nudge, nudge, wink, wink to the studio and the production team that a callback to their last success. It's like here's a little connection between that movie and this because it's the same stars, it's the same movie, it's the same production studio. It's a bit like in From Russia with Love when Eon production Eon changed the Niagara Marilyn Monroe movie poster for Call Me Buena. Um, I think it's just just a, a an in an house joke within the the production studio company studio so it's just such a weird one because they are reacting to that song as in nope we're not going down there i'm like uh, uh, okay <laughs> they know how bad that movie is they don't want to go anywhere near it That's <laughs> fair. <laughs> fair point we, we did also get the uh the the bernard cribbins uh cameo in that sequence and i i i will always love bernard cribbins so uh any any chance to see him on screen was fun um okay who's next for a dislike david I'm not sure I can actually, oh, look at me being, you know, diplomatic as usual. <laughs> but I'm going to go for a spot that always makes me feel a bit kind of ambivalent, if not a bit queasy. It's the, it's a very small character in the film played by the actor John Wells. Anyone know which Eon Bond film John Wells appears in? He Racking my brain. He plays in this film, he plays Four Dice, who is the assistant to Q. No, he's at the end of uh, For Your Eyes Only when he plays Dennis That's Thatcher. It. He yes. plays Dennis Thatcher in For Your Eyes Only as well. So, um, yeah, so Four Dice is what we call a sissy character, which is a gay character who's rendered harmless by being sexually neutral. So I think like these probably the closest. And again, I'm not sure the dates. I think I think John Inman appeared in um, uh, Open All Hours. Uh, it's not Open All Hours. No, what's what's the one with the um, the the, uh, um, the department store is it open all hours? Oh no, uh, that I'm mixing it up, aren't I? The the sitcom anyway, yeah. where it's in a department store. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, are you being served? That's it. Are yes. you being served? Yeah. So he plays a sissy character. Um, John Inman, uh, the actor, played a a sissy character in that, and he, John Inman was gay. John Wells wasn't gay, but he's playing that character, and he's kind of measuring. You know, it's very. If anyone knows the Fast Show, it's very suits you, sir, and all that sort of thing. So seeing those sorts of characters in films always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable for kind of queer representation but being as this film is so brilliant in other ways in terms of queer representation I can sort of forgive it the one part of that scene that I always find rankles and it's not this film's fault it's actually Octopussy's fault is when Q takes the takes the mickey out of the gadgetry in the Eon series um, because when Peter Sellers picks up the pen and he says he's about to say good for writing poison pen letters and then Q turns around and says yes usually it's something like when I'm paraphrasing but when people say that that's when you say now's the time to leave MI5 so it's like they're saying this joke about poison pen letters is really naff 
1967, and yet in 1983, the Uon series used that joke without irony, and that always takes me out of the movie because I'm thinking they're lampooning something that won't happen for another 16 years, if that makes sense. I've watched this film too many times, haven't I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to ask now, if we're talking about the Q scene all of a sudden, and I do agree, that character is a bit of a strange turn, but the film does better in other yeah. circum- in other situations. But it's kind of a, an early glimpse into the absurd word, world of a Q branch office. We haven't really had that much absurdity yet, as far as I remember. No, you're right, actually. I think the most insane thing we'd seen was actually not a Q scene, but a... Um... Spectre Island, you know, in uh, from Russia with Love, which was kind of ah. kind of kooky. But you are right; like we hadn't gotten to the full-on extended Q's gadget sequences you would really get in the more films or the Brosnans. Yeah, I think the only time we'd seen Q, Q's lab at this point was Goldfinger. Yeah, because on the others he'd been out in the field. He'd been to either the Bahamas or Japan in the other ones. So yeah. Um, well, that that begs the question then: What is the most absurd Q gadget in this film? Oh my god! I mean, you've got the bowler hat that has a gun in it. That's a that's a strange one. You've got the uh, James Bond toadstool, uh, patent pending. I'm not sure what that is used for. Uh, the the bulletproof armor with a Geiger counter in it. <laughs> that's always uh, necessary. Of course, it comes in different colors. Uh, oh, okay. The the TV watch, which Bond would bring back later on yeah. with Roger Moore. I mean, honestly, like all of these gadgets seem completely feasible in a world where, like, you know, Roger Moore Bond has like the rope that climbs in Octopussy and things like that, like or the umbrella that snaps people up like a Venus flytrap. I don't know. All those gadgets seem to me more like spoof material than what we're seeing in this movie. Yeah, that's very fair. Okay, well then, Cam, what about you? What's a dislike you have? Um, well, I just want to just briefly say, like, there's a lot of sellers material that hasn't aged well. There's a lot of, uh, shall we say, racist impressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie has a few of those. Um, also, there's, like, the scene with the um, the agent they're training where there's the, quote-unquote, like, Chinese agent, I guess. And he's, like, saying sayonara to her and things like that. It's like, that, not great. Not great. Um, so that's one thing, obviously, that's uh, aged this movie very poorly. But... In terms of, like, I think for me one of the frustrations is, like, if you had a little more interconnected character stuff, I think this could work a lot better. It's the fact that, like, it really does hit these, like, barriers where characters just vanish that makes it feel like it's lurching from place to place. And I think if you managed to iron that out just a little more, it would have flowed because, like, the the introduction of the Deborah Carr, uh, Carr character where you have just Bond showing up and we have a spy posing as M's widow. It's like, there is like no setup for this whatsoever. And I find it very confusing. And I just think like it's elements like that. The movie may not be a masterpiece if you had it, but it would make a lot more sense to people. And I think that's one of the biggest things that makes this movie frustrating. And one of the biggest things that drags it down for viewers who don't have the appreciation, you know, for the Bond universe that they can bring to it is that, it's like it doesn't play like a, a film that they would watch. Like films have typically character arcs, stories that carry you through, connected characters, and this movie just doesn't have those. Do you think that the instability in identity is something that makes it kind of 
I don't know. I, I, I said, obviously, when I go in with a very biased kind of pair of lenses on and instability and identity is what my website's all about. Yeah. You know, kind of like people trying to find their way in the world. I mean, the the classic is that when I rewatched it yesterday uh, in preparation for today, I'd forgotten, even though I'd written about it before, that um, Marta Bond is not necessarily actually Sir James's daughter. In other scenes, she's referred to as his goddaughter, and that just shows a bit of a mismatch <laughs> between different the, the different people writing and directing the film. And because he makes some kind of almost like um, if it is his daughter, they're really awkwardly like almost incestuous comments to her. And then... there's a quote I wrote down that she says to him. Uh, if you weren't my dad, I could fancy you. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And he's talking about the size of her breasts in 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 a in a slightly later scene. Yeah, that she has much more formidable weapons than her mother had, or something. That's it. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, I mean, in that in that sense, this film is. And you're right with Deborah Carr. It's like she's now playing M's widow. So who was she playing before? Everyone seems to be playing a role. <laughs> I mean, and then you've got that. You know, I because I. I fixate on the Deborah Carr scenes in this movie. You've got the scene where she's escaping from um, the the castle down the drain pipe, and it's clearly it's obviously a man in kind of drag. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing stunt. Not taking anything away, and that just speaks to kind of the dearth of uh, of, of female stunt people back in 1967 uh, that they possibly couldn't find anybody. But it's every every kind of scene of this film even individual scenes kind of like you never really can pin down who the characters are it's that's what i find fascinating about it but i can understand why people get mega frustrated with it i'm still confused are m's daughters also spies yeah well I <laughs> I, to me they're, they're not m's daughters they're just no. control okay they're not actually m's daughters they're uh, Members of uh, whatever it is, control or authority. See, they, they also kept moving that around. Is is with the bad guy Smirsh, and then they talked about authority and control, and yeah, I, I don't know, but um, but to me, they were agents of that group. So, um, uh, and interestingly as well, several of those girls were ended up in that scene because they they filmed the the crazy casino scene was one of the first things that he filmed. And they felt they basically went out and found all these models in London to populate the casino floor, and then they picked out them to be M's daughters. So you actually, if you look really carefully, um, you can actually see some of M's daughters are actually in the final casino scene because they actually filmed that first. So like Alexander Bastedo, and I think Jess, Jacqueline Biss, maybe you can, if you haven't already asked, her, I think she's in the final scene as she well. Is, yeah, and then was picked up to be. Um, Miss Goodthighs early, earlier on, so yeah, there's there's quite a few people in that final scene who shouldn't be there because they've actually been in earlier in the movie. And it's weird so, because like she's in the frame, Jacqueline yeah. Bissett, and then and then a scene later she's well got her thighs out with uh, Peter Sellers. Strange, yeah. But then yeah. again, this film is full of strange. I think the thing that fascinates me about this film is like when do we get to the point where something tips over into spoof? So. I was looking at some of the contemporary reviews from 1971 of Diamonds Are Forever, and it was widely accepted. You know how much I love that movie, and I, I, I love the underdog Bond movies, which is probably why I love this one so much. But at that time, that film was critically really well received, even though a lot of audio, a lot of critics said 
James Bond has tipped into spoof territory. So at what point does James Bond tip into spoof territory? Because, and Alan mentioned this earlier, there's so many Fleming bits of this. You know, the Sir James at the start of the movie is probably the, I'm, I'm going to go there, you know, this is, might be a bit provocative, but it's possibly the closest cinematic incarnation we actually have of Fleming's Bond. Because you can totally imagine him retiring and living, you know, trying to fill his days. Because he's got Fleming's Zaki and he's kind of trying to fill his days with all these pursuits that he doesn't really find fascinating at all. And he's developing a stammer because he's not kind of, you know, in the zone. And obviously Fleming, Fleming, you know, David Niven was one of his favourite picks for Bond. He even gets mentioned in the novel of You Only Live Twice. And... Yeah, I, I, it's like I find I find as I'm watching, I'm kind of like, is this really actually quite Fleming-like compared with what we ended up with on the screen from Eon? Yeah, I think so. I think you make a very good point. And David Niven also tried to actually buy the rights to do a Bond TV show at one point from Fleming, but couldn't. Um, so yeah, I think he I think he is probably, as you said, closest to Fleming's vision. And if you look at Fleming's Hoagie Carmichael, yeah description or the, that um, famous sketch that he had made of what Bond should look like. It's a lot closer to David Niven than probably any other actor who's ever had the role. So I think he's probably closest to what Fleming had in his mind. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I've always struggled more with just the visual of David Niven because like, I think like he, in terms of look, yes, I think he actually totally would have been a good Bond. But growing up, I was so exposed to him as a comedic actor. Like I just saw him in endless Disney comedies and stuff that I've always struggled to imagine him bringing kind of that serious spy version to the screen. I'm sure he could do it. He was a fabulous actor, but it's always been a bit of a block for me. Have you ever seen Raffles when he was a younger man? No, I haven't. Um, I'd, I'd recommend that to people because you can sort of see why Fleming liked the idea of him as Bond. He's kind of like this gentleman thief, um, kind of an anti-hero type character. Yeah. Okay, I'll check that out. Or a matter of a matter a matter of life and death, where he's oh, an RAF pilot. Oh my god, that film! One of my all-time favorite oh, movies. Same. Um, talk about yeah. So um, check out that if you've not seen it. Well, speaking of uh, Disney films, I'm going to talk about one of my dislikes really quickly. Um, Listeners may know I do not like the film One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. This film has a connection to that film and to the liquidator, and that is Mr. Derek Nemo. Because uh, he is back once again in this film to ruin it for me because uh, I get pulled right back to 1975. Um, I, I just I love that there's this spy world that he is in. He's in three spy movies, two in the 60s. The liquidator is two years before this, I think. Um so I, I, I'm probably going to write some sort of memoir for him at some point about how he had his life in, in the spy realm. I, I, I just think that it has some hilarity in it. But um, whenever I see him, he has like a, he has, his spies are all the same. They all talk like this. And uh, it's, it's so bizarre seeing him on screen. I, it, it does bump me. But the only other thing I had for dislikes, and I, I think we probably can all agree on this, is... Well, it's, it's interesting. When you're writing down something that happens in a, in a Bond film, that there isn't many times that you can write down the following sentence. The horse guard takes Matter Bond onto a UFO. <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I think, more confused by her changing haircut than I was by the spaceship at that point. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, but like that, the last, say, 20 minutes of this film, where we go into this the bizarre casino 
uh, battle royale, if you'll pardon the pun, um, and, and, and like the UFO abduction and the stuff in the Smirsh headquarters with Jimmy Bond slash Dr. Noah and, and Frankenstein walking around. The, the film has given up trying to make sense and it's just kind of just going with the vibe of it and just having some fun, which is absolutely fine. But for people who are trying to watch this film, it feels like it has just given up on trying to explain anything to you. And it, it's, it's tough to watch, I would say. By the way, the Frankenstein, Dave Prowse in his first on-screen movie appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, which, there's a whole story behind that too, but I won't go into that because we've been on long enough. But, uh. um, well, I think before we wrap up then, has anyone got any final notes? I have a question I want to ask people. Do you think this movie in some ways has aged better because of how much the pop culture now knows Casino Royale 2006 and that you can now watch this movie knowing the plot outline so you can kind of connect the dots better with things like the Vesper kidnapping and whatever. Do you think that that movie maybe has helped this one become a little bit, maybe just slightly more coherent? I don't think so. (laughs) You don't think so? I think it might have actually done the opposite because everyone knows who Vesper Lind is and she's this criminal mastermind who was eaten by her own robotic shark in order to escape um, being captured, if I remember correctly. So, which also, which also was nicked in Octopussy with the crocodile swallowing Bond. You know, I've literally got a list of about 25 things that the Eon series nick from this film. And... Yeah, I I just think it probably makes it even more incomprehensible. That's my take, anyway. Yeah, because you're trying to compare it to a film that actually works. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I don't I don't think so, Cam. Okay. No, I was going to say I I think I agree with David. It might have had the opposite because people will go in, they'll see the title, and they'll go in with certain expectations, which this film will <laughs> not meet at all. So. Um, I have one final note, which is I just. I was keeping track of the animal appearances in this and I started giving them names because I was losing my mind. So uh, we've got James Bark because we have the dog. Uh, We've got Seal Team 007 uh, which I'm quite proud of. And then we have uh, the original concept of Dr. No as the monkey turns up. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, with the toupee. I did laugh at that that chimp, yeah. Yeah. so I, there's probably more animals I've forgotten about in this film that I should give names to. But uh, yeah, shout the out tiger to Tiger Rug. What's that? Don't forget the Tiger Rug. Oh, of course, the Tiger Rug. What's a Bond uh, and pun? And the Lions. Yes. And the Lions. Oh, we need the Lion pun for Bond now. Uh, lions to kill? Oh. Oh. <laughs> That's a rough one. That one's sweaty. Pull That's up, sweaty. Cam. Pull up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, gents, I think it's time we answer the question that we always answer on this show. Is Casino Royale 67 making the knock list or is it going somewhere incredibly hot? David, you're up first. Oh, no. Why did you pick me first? I, I, have, <laughs> I, have, I have endless love for this movie. And and I'm I don't I almost don't want to categorize it in any way. Like it's not a spy movie, it's not a comedy, it's its own thing. It's just bizarre. So to be honest, I, even though I love this film, I don't think it kind of meets your criteria for the the knock list. If we're creating a canon of spy movies, I'm not sure it really fits in there. To be honest, but it's it's going on your knock list. Oh, it's on my list, obviously. Of course. Okay, so we've got one no so far, but it is all to play for. Alan, you're up next. Yeah, I'm with David. As much as 
I find this movie fascinating and rewatch it over and over and always find things to enjoy it. Is it a good spy movie? No, it's not on the not list. Um, but it is, it, it's, it, I think David's right. It stands out, it stands on its own. Um, as, as an event, I think it's, it, it's, a, what was the sixties word? It was a happening. Um, <laughs> so. um, okay. It's still all to play for, I guess. Cam, what have you got? Scott, you know me pretty well. I'm not a party guy. And this movie is a very long party. Um, so I like to sit there and admire some of the sights and sounds of this movie. I think it has interesting things about it. But it's just, I don't even know that I can say that this is a movie. It's almost like something more than that because it's not even following the rules of what a standard movie would be for people who are watching it. And it's also not art house enough to stand out as like an art film. It's just this weird in-between thing, you know. And so... <sighs> It's a movie that I think is interesting for film lovers, Bond scholars, people really fascinated with that world to dive into. But something that's on the knock list, not a chance, not a chance. I think like uh, Our Man Flint was a better representative on the knock list in terms of like the 60s post-Bond kind of spy craze stuff than this is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love this part because it means my vote means nothing. So I'm going to vote yes <laughs> because screw you all. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I couldn't. I couldn't allow this on the knock list. Um, it's it's an interesting film. It's a curio. I've heard it referred to as, but it's just too episodic to make sense. And I think if you put a normal man off the street in front of this film, they would pull their hair out. And I've got not much left. So yeah, it's a no for me, which makes four no's. And as such, Casino Royale sixty seven is not making the knock list. But Cam, I do have to ask you a quick question. Is it making another list? I don't think so. No, okay. it's too interesting. Okay. All right. We'll leave it there. You you guys at home will know what we're talking about. If you think it should make that list, let us know. But gents, I want to thank you both for joining us. Alan first. Where can people find more from you? First off, thank you for having me on to talk about Casino Royale 67. I happily talk about this movie over and over. Any opportunity I get, as some of my friends know all too well. Um, so thanks for that. And you can find me um, on Twitter at Bond Lexicon. And as I mentioned earlier, the James Bond Lexicon.online website. And I'd also recommend the uh, James Bond Lexicon book. I've got a copy myself. I've yet to get Alan to sign it, but I will make that happen one day. Uh, and it's uh, it's that book you grab when you need to know something about Bond. So that's how it works for me. I would definitely recommend it. Well, thank you. Um, David, what about you? Yeah, also a massive fan of Alan's book. I appeared on the Really 007 podcast when it was released. And I accidentally bought two copies of it as well. So I gave one away as a competition prize. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but as, as as for me, um, you can find the kind of central hub is licensedtoqueer.com. And then it's also on Twitter and Instagram. And there's a podcast version of selected episodes as well. It's not just me. As I said at the top of the show, it's about something around the li lines of 15 other people and, you know, growing all the time. So if you're interested in kind of uh, sharing your own queer points of view on Bond, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'm always after some new perspectives. And you had that fantastic video you did with Calvin Dyson mm. about the history of queer characters in Bond. That yeah, that was a lot we, of fun. Yeah, we loved that video, and we actually linked to it when we did yeah. our Diamonds Are Forever review, and I recommend people check that out for sure. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alan. Thank you, David, both for joining us. And that was our chat on Casino Royale 67. We finally ticked that Bond off of our list, Cam. That's right. It's one that's been looming over us, and I've always been terrified to tackle it i think we did a decent job i'm happy with it i'm happy with it too and i'm glad we got the interview with jacqueline Bissett to kind of 
give her perspective on it later in the week. So do tune in on Friday for that. But next week, Ham, what are we talking about? We're actually bouncing from comedy to comedy. We are tackling the 2009 Coen Brothers film, Burn After Reading. I am a, a, a Cohen noob, as it were. I think I've seen one. I've seen Lebowski, mm-hmm. and I've seen I have seen Burn After Reading before, which is a nice change of pace for us, where I've never seen anything. Uh, so I, I do have a bit of a story with it. So that'll be interesting, and we do have a great guest joining us as well. That's right. I think uh, I, I am a pretty big Cohen Brothers fan, and uh, Burn After Reading has an interesting place in my memory. Versus, I haven't done my rewatch yet. So I'm interested to see how my rewatch affects my opinion on this one. Well, there you go. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Burn After Reading and join us next week. Now, of course, Casino Royale 67 didn't make the knock list, but if you want to find out the films that did, go to letterbox.com slash spyhards where you can find out more. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, to the land! Hello, my name is Chris Carr. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and organized crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies, available on all podcast apps. This is Mana from Spy Heaven. 